folks, you're so welcome um, to the vineyard. My name's Andy, if we haven't met, um, and we do really hope that you feel at home and at ease among us. If you have little ones in the room, um, please feel totally free um, to let them run around and make some noise. Um, full disclosure, uh, the wheels kind of came off in our house this morning before church. Dana's in Brussels, and um, thanks, Chris. And we have one of those... Uh, father kid moments that you're probably not supposed to talk about whenever you're a minister but it, it wasn't very pretty and then we, we pulled it here after the service had started when I'm supposed to be here I turned around to the kids and said your dad's awesome and if anybody asks you love him a lot right um, so just in case you're one of those people that think people that do my kind of job stand up on stages and talk about the Bible and Jesus uh, have their life completely neat and tidy and in order uh, that is definitely not me and so if you're in any way in that camp uh, welcome home uh, welcome to a family of um, people trying to figure it out I guess um, but we are thrilled that you're you're here um, we're a community that believe passionately that Jesus is alive and active in the world and uh, we're trying to do everything we possibly can to join in with that activity in our everyday, ordinary lives, in the places that we work, in the, it's dangerous to say the communities that we live in because my next door neighbors are on Little Party and definitely we're leaving as me and my daughter were having a fairly loud conversation. Um, we were doing the opposite of bringing life to our street. We were making it a mess this morning. But anyway, um, we are passionate about trying to figure that out. We don't get it right all the time. Um, but I love that we are a community that is rumored to be a place of solutions in our city. That when people that aren't connected to our church, as far as we know, aren't even connected to Jesus, have a problem that their elderly dad can't cut his grass. They think, well, what, how are we going to solve this problem? They think, phone the vineyard. Like, I, I love that that is our reputation in our city. People that have never been through these doors, that don't relationally know any of us, when they're in need, they phone us. And um, that's got nothing to do necessarily with me and everything to do with all of you and the reputation that you carry in our city, and it's entirely appropriate. And as Laura said, Love Lagan Valley, first weekend in August, we get an opportunity to take that corporately to our whole city. It'd be really helpful for us if you want to be involved in that project, if you could sign up. We are cancelling church Sunday the 5th. We're going to come here, and then we're going to leave from here and go into our city. So even if you don't sign up, we're going to kind of make you if you show up. And that will be kid-friendly. You can bring your families and all that sort of stuff. We're really, really excited about that. So please do us a favour and sign up before that weekend. That'd be really helpful. So we're in week three of this summer series we've called Tales of the Kingdom. I wonder are any of you into political cartoons? Any of you familiar with political cartoons? Any of you know what political cartoons are? Any of you alive? <laughs> um, whenever I was a kid, uh, we used to do Saturday morning uh, breakfast at my grandparents, and my grandfather used to give us as children the uh, papers. I don't know why. I think he obviously thought we were idiots and needed to be educated in the world. Five years old, getting handed the, you know, the times. It was always a bit confusing. But one of the things I, I remember as a kid looking for was flicking through the paper, trying to find the cartoons and being really confused because they weren't, uh, usually they weren't very funny as far as me as a five or six year old, and they didn't make any sense. Political cartoons, they often require some sort of interpretation. And usually the really good ones do two things. It's not, definitely not true of all political cartoons, but the really good ones do two things. They critique a particular idea, policy, or piece of news that's been going on in that particular 
weak. So there's a, there's a critiquing element to good political cartoons. And then the other thing is they subtly or subversively try to um, advocate for a different idea, a policy, or a thing. So usually, like, the really good ones do two things. They critique something and they advocate for something. And they often have a particular code or symbol. And if you don't know what you're looking for or you don't understand the particular piece of news or what's going on in the world, they can just be really confusing. What has that got to do with Jesus? Jesus spent a huge amount of his time telling stories that in his day were like political cartoons. Stories that had a form of code in them. Stories that both uh, critiqued some of the prevailing ideas, attitudes, and narratives that were going on in the day, and also in a really subversive way, advocated for another way of thinking and doing life. There was a, a kind of a big idea at the center of almost every story Jesus ever told. And the idea is this, the kingdom of God. It's kind of a, a massive concept and idea. And if you've been around this community any length of time, you'll have heard me teach on this thing called the kingdom of God. But most of Jesus' stories are him articulating the vision and practice of life in the kingdom of God to those that were listening to him. Just a little bit of context before we jump into Mark 4. One of the things you need to understand about those that were listening to Jesus of, uh, at the day is um, they were living under foreign military occupation. And there was a local puppet monarchy. And the people were desperate for a liberator. They were desperate for somebody to come and set them free from this ugly and brutal foreign ruler, namely Rome. Desperate for a rescuer to rise from among them and lead them into freedom. And they understood this idea of freedom to be life in the kingdom of God. That God would one day send a savior that would become king and usher in a new way of doing life that was totally free called the kingdom of God. This is really interesting because the people of Israel listening to Jesus, one of the things they weren't concerned with was life after death. Most of the teaching of Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with what happens to you when you die. It has everything to do with what liberation looks like here on earth. And Jesus is telling these stories with hidden and encrypted meaning to spread his idea, vision, and practice of life in the kingdom in such a way that wouldn't get him thrown in jail, or at least not yet. Because if you know anything about what life under a foreign military occupier is like, when you start to talk about a different kingdom or a new kingdom, well, that gets you in trouble and it's liable to get you killed as we see in the gospel. So this morning I want to look at one of those stories from Mark 4. Um, Mark 4 verses 1 to 9. It's page 697 in your black Bible. So if you have a Bible sitting beside you, why don't you grab it? 697. You can follow along. Mark 4, we're going to read from verse 1 and finish at verse 9. It says this. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, 
A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they weathered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you long to release hope and life to us. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Jesus' popularity in this passage is now in full swing. Wherever he goes, crowds, hundreds, thousands of people gather to listen to his stories, to watch what he does, and to get around him. Any of you followed the royal visit to Dublin this week? Anybody see that? Just me again? Any of you alive? Any of your arms work? Can you wave? Just everybody wave at me for a second. Brilliant. Great. Any of you watched the royal visit this week? No? Okay, right. You're just telling the truth. Brilliant. All right. You're all like, royal visit Dublin. I have more important things to do, Andy. I don't know what you were doing this week. Maybe that's why you fell out with your kids. Too much time watching the news. Um, So for those of you who missed it, right... um, Prince Harry and uh, Meghan, his new wife, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, they visited Ireland, they went to Dublin, they went to all sorts of stuff, they finished their visit um, when they went to the, the famine memorial, but wherever they went, if you saw any of the pictures, which obviously didn't, you can Google them when you go home, uh, wherever they went, there were massive crowds, massive, massive crowds that gathered to see them, to, to try and shake their hand, to say hi, all this kind of stuff. You have to imagine, in this context, in these stories, this is that on steroids. Wherever Jesus goes, they pile out to get around him, to listen to him, and to talk. And he begins to tell stories And it's likely that in this context, they were there listening all day. This wasn't like a little moment where Jesus got on a wee boat and went and told a story about a farmer and then got back to shore and then went on his his way. It's likely that the boat was out. They were teaching there all day. There was questions. He's probably praying and all that kind of stuff. And Mark has pulled out this particular story about this farmer and him sowing seeds. Don't forget, like I said, these people are living under foreign military oppression, right? Any of you seen, this is dangerous. I'm going to maybe just talk to Chris. Chris, can I talk to you? Because they don't talk to me. Is that right? So maybe if you do know what I'm talking about, you can answer. But uh, for my sake, right, I'm just going to talk to Chris, right? Um, Any of you seen the the man in the high castle? Read the book? Seen the stories? Anybody? Jeez Louise, right? (laughs) I'm going to talk to myself. Andy, have you read the book, The Man in the High Castle? Yeah, I have. It's a good book. What did you think about it? I thought it was good. So basically, the idea behind this book is the Allies lost the Second World War, right? And the book is describing what life is like in London post-war while Nazi occupation is going on. And there's resistance. And the resistance are trying to spread their idea and recruit people to their cause without being 
caught and there's the Nazi Secret Service are trying to find them and this kind of brutal back and forward goes on and then they made it in the TV show that's actually really good and, and really interesting. If you want to imagine what life was like for the people living in Jesus' day, imagine here we are, whatever it is, 60, nearly 80 years later, that we still live under Nazi occupation here. And there are spies and people that are trying to make sure that we all stay in line. And anybody that's rumored to be part of the resistance or spouting any kind of resistance idea, well, it's likely that someone comes through their doors at night and you never see them ever again. The only difference between that and this is you probably would see them again while they're being publicly executed for everyone to watch. This is normal life for people in Israel in the time of Jesus. So they're, they're longing for a rescuer, a liberator to come on behalf of God and set his people free and rule here on earth in his place. So most of them are living with this secret longing and along comes Jesus. And he starts to say and do things that sound awfully like a liberator. He starts to challenge the status quo. He starts to demonstrate an authority in the supernatural that they've never seen before. And it's like this seed of hope begins to kind of bubble up within them, except nobody can articulate it because you don't want to get found out as potentially being one of those people and end up hanging on a cross at the side of a road, which was totally normal. And Jesus is telling these stories to describe what the kingdom is like and what life in it is like and how to get into it. And he's using these stories, he's, he's using code so that they can be spread and wrestled with without it being an explicit, at this time, call to revolution, which is likely getting it squashed. And it's really interesting in this context that he doesn't say that the kingdom of God is like a consuming fire. And whenever it comes, it will burn up everyone and everything that is in opposition to it. That's what the people would have longed for. That their enemies would have been consumed all around them as they watched God establish his kingdom through his king here on earth. They're kind of longing for William Wallace or at least a first century Jewish version, whatever that would look like. They're longing for the warrior to rise up and cry freedom and confront this horrible, oppressive system known as Rome. That's what they are looking for. And they gather around Jesus and he starts talking about farmers and seeds. Like you have to imagine like an exhale of disappointment in this moment. It doesn't sound very radical. It doesn't sound very inspiring. And it certainly doesn't sound very fast. You know anything about seeds? Like they get buried and you don't see much for a long time. I wonder how many of us are longing for sudden changes in our lives. I wonder how many of you have ever prayed a prayer, sound something like this. God, when I wake up in the morning, let this thing be different. God, just do something. Take it away. Change it. 
move it, deal with it, just do something to make it different. This is the longing that they have. They want a sudden breakthrough and change. And Jesus says, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. I wonder how many of them were lost at that sentence. Maybe at the back of the crowd, they've been dragged along. Maybe I'll go and give this Jesus guy a try. And they're, they're longing for the cry of revolution. And Jesus says, a farmer went out to sow his seed. I wonder how many looked at each other and went, I don't have time for this. We need a, a warrior, not some sort of agricultural specialist. What has farming got to do with revolution? What good is seed against a sword? The story is profound because already Jesus is redefining who the enemy is and what liberation looks like. He's bringing a whole new perspective on what God's kingdom actually is and how it works. I wonder how many of you have struggled to make this whole God thing work. You don't need to put your hands up. I know you don't like that. Like, like you've maybe lived with an awareness of something other out there for most of your life. But what it actually is, who it actually is, how you actually connect to whatever it is. And you try church and maybe you try prayer at least whenever you're desperate, you do that. Maybe some of you have really gone on that like kind of super Christian thing and you even do like conferences and uh, Christian podcasts because you have to sit through this nonsense most Sundays books, you know, there's any list of like different like um, courses and programs and all sorts of things with the goal to kind of help you figure out how to like succeed at the Christian life. We got things like 40 Days of Purpose, Alpha Course, Network Courses 24-7, Prayer Courses, Healing on the Streets, Two Day Fast, Four Day Fast, Rooted, Bible in the Year, Apps, Retreats, Advances, Counseling, Inner Healed Prayer Ministry, Mentoring, all of these kind of things. And, and sometimes we can go from like one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And we, we get through them all and we find ourselves, we're not really growing. In fact, actually, we get more anxious and more difficult. And somebody gives us a book and we think, well, give that a try for a while. And then that doesn't really work. And, you know, you just kind of surf around the edge of maybe Christian community and stuff. And nothing really seems to bring you the breakthrough that you're longing for. And all those things that I've listed there are great. I've done most of them. There's no problem with any of them. But absolutely none of them. There is absolutely nothing external, including God himself, that determine whether or not you will grow in God or not. You see, this thing Jesus is telling stories about, the kingdom of God, if you can find your way into it, it will do something to you. Paul says in Romans that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That word righteousness literally means right relationship. That when you get into the kingdom of God, you discover that your relationships become whole. Your relationship with God becomes restored. You don't live with that 
secret sense of shame or insecurity or waiting to be found out. You're convinced of his affection and affirmation towards who you are. Your relationship with people around you becomes healthy and whole, flourishing. Forgiveness becomes a way of life, seeing the best in people living with an atmosphere of hope in your heart and positivity towards others. And your relationship to the planet becomes one of stewardship, where where we don't consume everything around us, but we see ourselves as stewards to draw out the potential of what God has planted all around us. This idea of righteousness, it's the most beautiful word, flourishing in our holistic relationships, God, people, and the world around us, that that's life in the kingdom, right relationships. But life in the kingdom is a life permeated with peace. You know we live in an age of chronic anxiety, right? That we're potentially the most anxious group of people that have ever lived. We're worried about worry. I'm worried when we're not worried, because we should be worried, because everybody's worried, right? This anxiety thing is out of control. And total bunny trail, I haven't written this down, but parents, you need to pay attention to this. And you need to find a way to walk in the opposite direction. And that begins with you. Anxiety is becoming a way of life for our kids. And we need as a church to learn how to be what one friend describes as a non-anxious presence in the world. Like what if the church could become a non-anxious presence in the world? In the midst of our, our friend Mr. Trump and Brexit and Irish border debates and political instability and dysfunction. What if there were a bunch of people who were able to exist in the midst of uncertainty and not be crippled with anxiety? That's the church. Paul says that life in the kingdom is a life permeated with peace. And then finally he says, it's a life full of joy. I love this. I love that that's his descriptor of life in the kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Now listen, I know that joy and fun are not the same for you intense religious people. If any of you are in here, you're quick to say that, right? Well, Andy, you know, joy isn't fun, right? Like joy is joy. Don't confuse the two. You see, you can have fun without joy, but I don't think you can have joy without fun. Sure, joy is deeper and broader than fun. Of course it is. But it absolutely has fun in it. And it is totally appropriate and expectation that our city and our community and our family members and our friends who haven't yet figured out what they think about Jesus would find us the most fun people to be around. That we're able to laugh at ourselves and we're able to laugh at each other and we're able to laugh at the world. Our lives are filled with joy. 
righteousness, peace, and joy. So how do we get access to this kingdom? This is what this story Jesus is telling is all about. Remember, political cartoons, there's a code. And in this story, there is a code. The seeds that Jesus is talking about represent the word and words of God. And the soil are people's hearts, the landing place for the seeds. See, here's the crux of this whole story. Our growth in God is not determined by him. It's kind of bad news, isn't it? Like, it'd be so much better if it was his responsibility for us to grow, right? Like, you just choose to be in church and everything else will be taken care of. That's not how it works. Our growth in God is not determined by him. It's really interesting. The farmer is sowing the seed indiscriminately. Seems a bit wasteful if you ask me. Like, he's just chucking it around. That's not really how you're supposed to do that, right? Like, I mean, you plow and you have furrows. Is that right, Adrian? Thanks. <laughs> you have furrows and you're supposed to plant where you've prepared to plant. That's how at least efficient farmers work. Not this farmer. He's just walking around chucking seed everywhere. That's exactly how God works. He's releasing his words of hope and life Everywhere, over everyone, over every city, every nation, every place in the world, he's releasing words of hope and life. And our part in the process is determining what kind of soil it's going to land on. I I find this so, so interesting that you can have two people in the same place, two completely different opinions. Any of you know those people that hate Lisburn? Oh yeah, sorry, you don't like waving at me. Those people, you talk to them, they're like, I flipping hate Lisburn. Like, I hate this place. Like, it's nothing good here. Like, shops are closed. And, you know, like, it's just like Belfast, little brother. And, you know, I wish I could leave. And actually, I probably can leave. But I don't want to think about that because then I'd be responsible for something and I'd rather just moan. Um, or other people who live in exactly the same place with the, I love it here. Any of you remember? Sorry, I keep asking you questions. I remember a year ago when Yvette did her Love Lisburn list. And she literally stood up here one Sunday and she listed everything she loves about this city. And it was amazing. She started with Wallace Park and she talked about Salto and she talked about our schools and she talked about the sense of community. And like it, was, it was amazing. I find it so, so interesting that two people live in exactly the same place can have two completely opposite opinions. God is indiscriminately releasing words of hope and life over all of us and everyone. The question is whether or not you will have the courage to receive it. What determines our fruitfulness is all about the soil that the seeds land on. Some seed in this story falls on rocky ground where it springs up quickly. But the text says that it didn't have a root I have to confess, I, I see this a lot. In, in my job, doing, doing what I do, I, I observe people at conferences or church gatherings or tribes or things like that, and they have a profound and very real encounter with God. And everything changes. They're like, I'm, I'm, I'm changed forever. And usually what quickly follows is an um, expression of desire to do something that they think um, is like the pinnacle expression of commitment to Jesus. Particularly in teenagers, it's I'm going to Bible college. 
right? And <laughs> you wouldn't believe the amount of teenagers I discouraged from Bible college. Not because I don't like it, we have one here, but uh, it's just a funky thing. It's like, if I'm really committed to Jesus, I'll be a pastor, right? I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> and there's this like expression of like, I'm, I'm ordering everything around Jesus. I'm, 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 I'm all in. I'm sold out. I'm going on a mission trip. I'm trying to move to Africa. And like, God is the rest of my life. And six months later, it's like, hey, how, how's it going? Oh, no, not good. And the fire has gone out. And things have changed and that they haven't changed. In fact, nothing has changed until that next encounter when everything changes again, until it doesn't. And usually the only thing that changes is the person gets a little bit more bitter and cynical towards God and this whole God thing not actually working. The text says that some fall among thorns where thorns choke the seed and it dies. And some fall on good soil and it bears fruit up to a hundredfold. Imagine if I told you right now that you could do something that was going to get you a hundred times return on your investment. One hundred times. That's crazy. But the whole point of this story is that the fruit wasn't determined by the seed, it's determined by the soil. The fruitfulness is not determined by the seed, it's determined by the soil. And at the end of the text, Jesus explains what's going on to his disciples. He gives them the code. He says, verse 16, Others, like the seed sown in rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The encounter is real. But the moment it starts to cost, we tap out. The moment an association with Jesus begins to cost us in reputation or time or comfort, money, we're like, mm, actually, I'm, I'm out. Jesus goes on to explain the seed among the thorns. People who get overwhelmed by what he defines. I have a party up here. She's so cute. What he defines is the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and other things. I hate the Bible sometimes. Like it's so much easier if that says something else there. Overwhelmed by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and other things. Here's what's really important to understand. Wealth is not wrong. Wealth is not bad. We are actively praying that we would become the wealthiest community in our entire city because we want to give the most money away. It's hard to give money if you don't have it, right? But Jesus says the deceitfulness of wealth. Because if we're not careful, money can come with all kinds of promises. Most of them are lies. Like if you just get more, you'll be happy. And literally, it becomes an idol. It becomes a thing that we worship. And our hope is in what we worship. Hence, most of us worship money. It's what our hope is in. If we just get more money, then our life will become better. Our problems will go away and everything will be rosy. It's so interesting 
spending time with wealthy people and noticing that most of them have problems. Like you and me. And yet, we can know that. We can read books on it and we can, all that sort of stuff. And yet, there's something about this allure of money that like, even though we know that, we choose to still put our hope in it. And we order our life around getting more of it and more of it and more of it and more of it. And then Jesus says that others hear the word and accept it. And their lives become fruitful. I don't know about you, but my question when I come to this text is, how do I get to be that guy? Like, how do do I get to be that one? What does it require of me to be the one who accepts it and to live a fruitful life? How do you get to become good soil? Can you get to become good soil? Is this just like, well, you know, the cards are dealt and I'm whatever I am, so whatever happens, happens. I don't believe that's true for a second. Jesus is telling this story to provoke people to ask this exact question. What do you need to do to become good soil? And the reality is that the soil of your soul is determined by the things that you ultimately desire. Question, rather intense for whatever time it is on a Sunday afternoon. What do you desire? Like deeply. Like at the core of who you are. What do you desire? Maybe another way of asking that question is, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? And don't confuse passion with excitement. Passion is what you're prepared to suffer for. What are you prepared to suffer for? What do you suffer for? I find this really, really interesting just in my fun daydreaming of observing my own life and the life of of people around me. That we choose to suffer for all sorts of really weird things, don't we? Most of us actually make our families suffer for our pursuit of money, right? Right? I can't see it because I've got to work. I've got to do this thing and I've got to do that thing. And, and we, we suffer for that. And our relationships suffer for that. And listen, I understand that like, we, we need to work and that's not just black and white. I, I get that, but I'm just trying to explain the point. Or, or one of the other things we suffer for is our reputation, right? Often not in the best way. We've made a commitment, but our lives are out of control and our, maybe those that are really important to us haven't seen much of us this week, but you know, we've committed to do something for somebody maybe that we don't even know very well. But you know, like our, re- our reputation really, really matters, and so we'll say yes to that thing even though we're going to suffer in our family because we don't want to let that person down that we don't really know very well. It doesn't seem to make much sense or like we'll we'll this is brilliant we'll suffer like our, our sleep will suffer because you know it's important that you know what's happening on Instagram at two o'clock in the morning we'll suffer for it like we'll 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 suffer being present with our friends because there's a whole world of people we don't know that really need to see that cool photo. What did you say? 
Sorry, I'm taking a photo. Were we talking about something? What are you passionate about? Having as many likes on Instagram as you can possibly get? Having a bunch of people that are far from you think the most of you? What if, what if we were able to become the kind of community that our ultimate desire, like ultimate deep desire, was to live fully surrendered and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus? I wonder what that would look like. See, here's the thing. Whenever you get there, you bear fruit in your sleep. Like it just, it just happens. The, the, the need for the podcasts or the book or the conferences or the church meetings or the, you know, all of the, the, the anxious energy that's around just trying to figure out how to grow in God, it just kind of goes away. Because that kind of soil cannot help bear fruit. What if we were able to cultivate the kind of lives that were most passionate about Jesus, about his presence and his words and his works and what's going on around us? What if we learn to prioritize those things, God forbid, even suffer for those things? I wonder what kind of fruit would begin to spring up in our lives. What does it look like to cultivate soil that makes fruitfulness inevitable? Not Effortful, forgive me, I made that word up. But inevitable. What if we were able to cultivate the kind of soil in our lives that fruitfulness, it was just inevitable. I think that's where righteousness, peace, and joy comes from. It's not this effort kind of, oh yeah, right relationships, okay God, I'm here, I want to pray, and yes, I'm going to love that person, and yeah, okay, I need to up my recycling. Or peace where it's like, yeah, I need to stop being anxious, stop worrying, stop thinking about that thing, you know? Or like, (laughs) or the fake, like, yeah, I'm really happy. Life is so hard, but I'm happy, God's good. But life is so hard, right? What if those things were inevitable? They can be when we learn to cultivate the soil where Jesus is our ultimate desire. Let me finish with this um, psalm. Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. James, will you come back up? 
It's not very often in Northern Ireland we can relate to a dry and parched land where there is no water. Right? But we can right now. And what's be really interesting today, if you, if, for those of you who have gardens, go and look at what's happening to the rain on the ground. It's a really interesting thing happens when we have been through a period of drought. When the first rains come, they run off. There's not a whole lot of soaking in that actually happens. And our sense this morning is that actually lots of you, if you're honest, would say, Andy, that's us. We're doing everything we can with this whole Jesus thing, but actually, it's like a dry and parched land where there is no water. And the problem is that whenever God's presence falls on that, just like that dry ground, often it just runs off. I mean, it's wonderful for the moment. And you can get emotional and it can get all of the warm and fuzzies and all of those things. And you leave a moment like this going, oh, wow, that was like water in a desert. I hope I'm different. But tomorrow, the ground's still cracked. And the gardens are still dry. Because the solution to our fields and our gardens is not a day of rain. It's not a morning of rain. It's not a moment of rain. days and weeks I am not an agricultural specialist I'm not going to pretend to be but I would suggest it's going to take a lot more than a day of rain for our grass to become green again and for your soul to transition from a place of being dry and parched to something that makes fruitfulness inevitable it takes a lot more than a Sunday morning where you have an encounter with God learning how to live in the rain of heaven, learning how to receive it in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening where the cracks go away and the grass becomes green again. So if you're able, will you stand? I want to pray for us this morning. Father, we long to become, at least I do, the kind of person where fruitfulness is inevitable. I want to stop striving and trying. Stop trying to earn. I want to become the kind of person where fruitfulness is inevitable. And though we confess this morning that for many of us, our souls are dry and they're parched. And we confess this morning, in this moment, that we long for you and for your reign. And God, we pray over our lives, let it rain. Let it rain. Let it rain and rain and rain and rain. Father, I pray that you would help us cultivate a desire for your son Jesus. That we would become passionate about Jesus above all else in our lives. God, we want to become the kind of community that bears fruit a hundred times. One hundred times. Let your righteousness, your peace and your joy rest upon us, bubble up within us. 
break out all around us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray.